The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, creating new challenges and opportunities to defend against sophisticated attacks. At Northrop Grumman, we provide a wide range of capabilities to stay ahead of these threats. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com backslash cyber. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today to discuss how to think about America's cyber adversaries and improve the nation's security, including a novel digital health wallet, is Carl Wagner, who spent three decades at the Central Intelligence Agency, where he served in a number of senior intelligence jobs, including in counterintelligence. He was the senior director of global security uh, at Tesla before striking off on his own uh, to found a parent company, BuddyCheck, uh, that is pioneering a whole series of apps and technologies, including the Confirmed D uh, Health Wallet. Carl, thanks so very much for joining us, especially since you've been uh, pretty relentless, relentlessly on the move for the last week and a half. Well, thanks, Fago. It's a pleasure to join you. Uh, absolute pleasure having you on. And before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine, while our naval coverage overall is sponsored by Fincantieri. Marinette Marine. Carl, uh, great to have you on the program. It was a pleasure to hear you at the recent GovMates Institute uh, first in-person conference uh, since uh, the start of the COVID pandemic, the sucker punch, uh, reevaluating your supply chain. You were uh, one of uh, the thoughtful uh, speakers. I first want to say that um, you know, Afghanistan and what's happening there must be deeply personal and, and hope that your close friends and their families uh, manage to stay out of harm's way. Uh, uh, before we get started. Um, across your career, you've got an intimate understanding of, of threats, how to visualize them. And one of the interesting things you said at the conference is that one of the reasons our security may not be as good as it needs to be is that people may be having trouble visualizing the threat, right? Understanding missiles or aircraft carriers or tanks are quantifiable, whereas people sort of see this perhaps not as clearly, even you know, and you were talking to a very expert cyber audience, right? How do how do people need to visualize the threat in order to visualize better security? Right. Well, it's a great question, uh, Vago. And there's a couple of points I think that Bear mentioned. Um, one is that you know cyber is hard to visualize, obviously, because it's it's not uh, staring us in the face across the table. Um, although it kind of is in terms of our computers and our phones. Um, cyber experts, I think, intuitively understand software and um, coding and programming. And so that's not necessarily a problem for them. Uh, for them, I think, and for, for many of those who are not in the intelligence world, um, understanding that there's a whole kind of subculture of intelligent work, intelligence work that happens out there. Um, well, you know, it makes sense. It's not something that uh, occurs to us on a daily basis. And, and therefore, it's easy to kind of overlook that, um, you know, beyond the, the, the ones and zeros in the software are, are live human beings that are running programs. Uh, these cyber programs are run by, um, by, by nation states who have their strategic interests in mind. And um, to kind of think about the people aspect of it, I think to, to me is a way of uh, making it more real and understanding that it's a bit more of a pervasive um, ecosystem and potential threat than, than we might otherwise uh, think of. 
And I was also going to just say that I think that there is an important distinction between being a security officer, quote unquote, um, and instead moving towards what we call enterprise risk management, which is a tip of the hat to the, the fact that security comes in many shapes and sizes. Uh, we're seeing now with the pandemic that health security is a is a vital um, part of an enterprise risk management program. But then ideally towards the end, getting to a position of being an enterprise risk leader. So we want to talk about enterprise risk leadership. And under that realm of enterprise risk leadership, uh, enterprise risk leaders understand that there are subtle imperceptible threats that are pervasive that they need to factor in. And that enterprise risk leadership is a process. It's not one thing, it's not a, a list of boxes, but it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing process and frame of mind that has to be adopted if we're uh, to succeed and with the new threats out there. Um, one, one of the things uh, that you uh, thoughtfully talked about, right, is, is the, you know, that sometimes it's not obvious, but that national intelligence services are working every single angle and something seemingly very small is one element of a broader campaign to sort of do the penetration, to do the exfiltration of data, uh, to get that, to gain that access and, and entry, which is why sort of you've got to be vigilant all the time. Um, Talk to us about how to be thinking, uh, right? I mean, you're a counterintelligence officer. Was was your was your last job at the agency? What's the difference between insider threat and insider trust? Because they're different sides of an important coin. Right. Well, um, there's a saying in the cybersecurity world, or there's a kind of a term or concept, the assumption of compromise. So, I think one of the ways to think about this from the outset is uh, we have to assume that our systems are compromised and that. Our firewalls, though they're vitally necessary, might not have kept everything out. And so you have to have a series of concentric rings and layers. And hopefully um, our CISOs out there are doing just that to deal with the assumption of compromise that, uh, you know, that, that, that um, it's likely that, that, that we've been had in one way or another. And that it is happening to me. Instead of it can't happen to me, it is happening to me. So how is it happening to me and what do I do about it? Um, in terms of the threat, you know, another way to kind of transform our thinking is to go from what we call insider threat, insider threat programming, to insider trust. Uh, insider trust is a tip of the hat to the fact that um, we all we're in, are a communal species working in a group environment. And the oldest and most effective, in my opinion, um, insider threat monitoring tool is the human eyes and ears in our, in our, in our gut instincts. And uh, usually when we've found people that have had problems that have resulted in insider threat issues um, in incidents, it's not something that really surprised those around that person. And I think it behooves us as leaders in government or in, in industry to um, implement insider trust programs where we can prevent problems before they, they occur by helping to put out the connectivity so we understand if people are having issues and problems and, and mitigate problems before they, they happen. That's what insider trust is all about. And that's what enterprise risk leadership should be about. Um, in, in cybersecurity, you, you mentioned, uh, obviously, right? I mean, part of this is software, part of this is a hardware vulnerability, but actually the most important part of it is the human uh, dimension to this, right? I mean, we, you tell people don't open files, they open files. You tell them don't plug anything into a network, they plug things into networks. You know, we're we're introducing, we, we buy some very cutting edge, highly sophisticated weapon systems and a, a well-meaning person on the flight line who's trying to get that uh, jet in the air, plugs it into a 10-year-old maintenance computer that, you know, or, or computer that may actually have malware on it, right? Talk, talk to us about the human 
dimension sure, and how do we absolutely. need to think and, and, and manage the human dimension, right? Because humans, <laughs> even from your old jobs, right? I mean, and current job, humans are the problem. <laughs> they're the solution. Well, you know, we are, we're all humans and we all are part of the problem potentially. And, you know, we all, we all go through ups and downs in life. Uh, this is why I coined the term humanware because we we know about software and hardware, but let's put humanware in there, in, where in there as well because these systems are designed by humans and used by humans. So we know that the best system and the best you know, cybersecurity um, layered program out there doesn't necessarily um, you know, 100% protect you against phishing because at the end of the day, people are apt to click on links and we're only as strong as our weakest link. We know that, right? So um, it behooves us to think about the human element, both the humans behind the attacks that we're receiving, uh, whether it's ransomware attacks by criminal elements that, who may be um, allowed to do what they're doing by state sponsors or the state sponsors themselves, or um, competition if we're talking private industry, et cetera, um, on that side. And then on the other side, are, again, insider trust and us being aware of our surroundings and our, the people around us, um, what's happening with our workforce, what's happening with our training program, what's happening with our with our CISO and, and, and all of our, our compliance. So we're, we're, we should all be all about processes and about people. Uh, it's very exciting to talk about new technologies and we certainly can't have the best cybersecurity without them, but it's, it's an incomplete you know, solution to say that that's, that's enough, uh, which is why we need to think about it in a more transformative fashion. Um, let me ask you about data because ultimately this is about protecting data and, and in, it's sort of a very, it appears to me that sometimes we have difficulty uh, a being uh, as imaginative about how things could end up, um, and equally not regard da this data and this information as as really weapons. We we have a we have a tendency of guarding very carefully kinetic systems, but sometimes we're somewhat not as as secure um, when when it comes to information. And you know, I'm reminded of that uh, because the Taliban now appears to have seized a lot of digital uh, biometric data. Uh, that it's going to doubtless use for uh, nefarious purposes and to put people at risk. Um, we, we saw that when the American embassy in Tehran fell, you know, there was shredded documents. And, you know, if, if you've got enough people with with uh, scotch tape, you can put those uh, papers back together again. And it's compromising information. How do we, instead of talking about those specific instances, how do we need to think about stewardship, custody, defense and protection of data, which is actually the most powerful and dangerous weapon we have on an individual basis, on a national basis, on an industrial basis, because right. I mean, is our, our mentality might not be right. I mean, we, we might not have to your first point, the right approach to this. And I'm, I'm sort of curious to get your expert take on what a better approach to this would be so that we avoid these sorts of outcomes because right. technology can allow that us, us sure. to do that. I think. Uh, a few points. First of all, you know, when you try to protect every, everything, you protect nothing. That's an old saying in, in counterintelligence and intelligence. It's, it's simply impossible to protect every bit of data. It's not necessary. And so one needs to go through what we call a crown jewels exercise. What are the crown jewels of your company or your agency? What do you need to protect and focus on so that you can let the rest of it go more or less? Um, then you get, start to get your arms around what you're trying to protect, but take an expansive view. Uh, when I When I was at at, um, at, at one of my former companies, we did a crown jewels exercise, not understanding that um, a part of the crown jewel, a part of the information we thought was not crown jewels, we only figured out two months later when an employee came to me and said, hey, 
if we lose this data, here's what can be done with it. Um, I didn't think it included personal information and it didn't, but it was able to be connected with something else and therefore became a crown jewel. So that's number one. Um, number two, I think we need to think about the differences between our society and we're, we're, we're very uh, strong as a society because of some of these differences, but it, it, um, it colors our perception of and the way we deal with um, information. Uh, number one is obvious, open society in general, so that we're an information sharing society. Uh, number two, we, uh, this, this hits across all countries, but the um, amount of information that is exponentially increasing uh, makes it much more, hard, much more difficult to figure out how to protect even that, uh, that subsection of that that needs to be protected. The, uh, when I was at um, the agency, I don't think it's going to uh, violate my oath of secrecy to say that, you know, there, we, we literally saw the information age when it came about through the process of declassification because through, uh, over a several year period, the, the number of documents that needed to be declassified skyrocketed. And it, it, it uh, just showed that there needed to be a different approach um, to, to protecting and handling information. And that's, that's kind of the same we're dealing with in uh, open society. And then number three, the increasing complexity of the technology. I mean, unless, unless we're really on the, on the um, cutting edge of, um, and, and, and really trying hard to figure out what's happening out there, you, you may not know that um, you're using a certain app or using your computer in a certain way or a certain IoT device is, is really compromising your crown jewels. Um, speaking of technology, I think one way to look at it is um, IoT, the information of things, um, revolution with all the increasing numbers of devices is going to exponentially increase the potential attack surface for cyber adversaries. And so, you know, now maybe the way into um, your network is, is through one of these devices as opposed to a direct attack. Um, with the pandemic, uh, people are working more remotely. So now people and information are more at risk because they're at the end of, uh, at the edge of a information network, not in person. So more data is at risk. And then, you know, thirdly, with our supply chain issues, I think the pandemic has laid bare the weaknesses uh, or at least the lack of redundancy in our supply chain. And, you know, supply chain can be viewed as um, technical supply chain as well as human supply chain. And we need to think about those issues and address them so we have the redundancy we need for our national security purposes. Um, so just, just a, few, a few ways of, of looking at it. But, but in the cyber domain, you know, it, it's a full full-on uh, domain of warfare, right? And so uh, the, the problem is, is that the edge is everywhere and the adversary can be at that edge. Maybe not everywhere at every time, but you have to protect those edges. And it's actually not one edge, it's multiple edges. And, and, and from those edges, right, they've tunneled uh, likely farther into your organization than you realize and you may not even catch them in the act, right? Uh, not to, um, you know, use some World War II analogy, right? You'll, you'll eventually find the tunnel. Absolutely. Well, at least that's what we have to assume. So under the assumption of compromise, your cybersecurity experts, if you talk to them and your CISOs out there, will tell you, well, we have certain ways of dealing with this. And I won't go into some of those technical details here because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not a CISO. I was uh, global security director at Tesla, but... I do have some experience with it. And um, some of them involve some element of deception and distraction inside your own network, which is interesting and innovative, I think. Um, so we just have to take a more sophisticated approach uh, to it. And um, some of them may involve a bit of offense um, as opposed to always defense. 
So what, it, very quickly uh, on that point, right, because I know that there's a robust uh, debate now, you know, that we may have put too many eggs in the offense uh, basket, not enough in the in the defense basket. Um, what, what's the balance on that uh, in, in, well, your, in, in your mind? In my opinion, and this is just Carl Wagner speaking, we absolutely have not put enough, uh, although we've, we've been solely focused on up to now, enough emphasis on the defense. We absolutely have not put enough focus on the offense. And so we need increasing levels of effort on both sides. I think it's a bit simplistic to say, well, we need 60% of one and 40% of another, because again, we're talking a multi, about a multidimensional uh, domain of warfare with multiple levels and layers and multiple games, if you want to call it a game, within the big game. And so we can't just say, oh, what, we, you don't want to do too much offense. What, what are you talking about? Are you talking about you know, doing the type of um, malware penetrations that are being done to us? Are you talking about disruption operations? Are you talking about ransomware attacks? There are a lot, there's a lot of subtlety, and then there's a lot of kind of visibility to these different techniques. And it's incredibly simplistic to say, oh, gee, we're, we're, we're just doing too much of one and not enough of the other. We need more of both. And only with more of both are we really going to prevail in this, in this domain. Uh, let me uh, take you to uh, Buddy Check and confirm D. Uh, congratulations. Uh, you know, you are uh, certainly have developed an innovative product that is at the right place at the right time uh, in terms of a digital uh, health wallet where you can put uh, COVID vaccination certificates, for example, uh, that are going to become increasingly required. We're going to get a third uh, inoculation, series of inoculations, and we don't know how much longer this crisis is going to take. Talk to us about Buddy Check first, the parent company, and what you're trying to achieve and do that's unique at what is um, an interesting nexus, but also a very crowded uh, nexus, right, Carl? What are some of the things that BuddyCheck is trying to do that are unique that other folks are not necessarily doing? Well, uh, you know, BuddyCheck's primary focus at this point is the digital medical wallet. And um, this is using the COVID-19 pandemic as, as a tool or a wedge or as an opportunity to solve a vexing problem in healthcare and health tech, which has been that um, individuals have a hard time really controlling and owning their own data and being able to share it. Um, but Confirm D by BuddyCheck is, is really um, one level of a multi-layered approach that I have to resilience, which I believe um, can be kind of described and analyzed and worked at the various levels, all the way from the personal level to enterprise level at, uh, with companies, to the national level for national security, to the global level. We're talking about environment, social, and governance principles being necessary for um, development in Africa so that we do development the right way in a way that's sustainable, We're talking about um, climate change, et cetera. That's resilience at all these levels. And um, that's what I've um, began to focus on since I left government. Uh, but primarily at this point with the uh, confirmed D digital medical wallet, uh, because it's a very important part of um, health security, which is part of enterprise risk leadership. Talk to us about what makes ConfirmD unique um, in, in the marketplace, right? I mean, there are others. What, what makes you guys unique? Sure. But first of all, let me address this term, COVID-19 vaccine passport. Passports are issued by governments. We're not a government. We're a private sector effort. We're trying to give citizens and our users choice and to give them options, right? So um, our, our platform, which is both a, a mobile app as well as a web app, is also not just for COVID-19 vaccines. Um, and it's, it's uh, really been built 
as as a tool to eventually be able to for you to be able to have all your vaccine records and and, and if not all, most or much of your medical information so that you can truly own it and share it and control it in a very secure HIPAA compliant backend that takes security by design as our, as our approach. Um, no, you know, not um, selling your information, not leveraging you for, through, for advertising, et cetera. So what, what ConfirmD does and a couple of things that make it different are that um, we have a process which is, it's an open architecture. So you can upload any document, paper document or uh, through screenshot digitally move over into, um, into the app, whether you're on the web version or the uh, mobile phone version, your, your uh, COVID-19 test records and vaccine information. That's important because the, um, the few other apps that are out there, and there's actually fewer than people think, there's a lot of, a lot of talk, but when you kind of sift through it all, there's only a couple of, a couple of options, um, almost without exception, focus on medical integrations. And so if they've done a medical integration with your health provider, great, your information can and probably is included in the data and you can download it into the, that app. If it's not, then you're out of luck. And so we thought about that in the beginning and decided this, it's, it's high time for us to be able to have basically a, a digital kind of conversion technology. So you just upload the data. Um, that also then though requires a verification process, which we staff with our um, licensed medical professionals for a small fee, or you can have your documents verified by your own medical professional for free. Um, that's the only thing that we would charge for. The whole platform can be used for free. But we think that verification of records is very important. And I think that's been, we've been vindicated by several um, government uh, approaches to this. The city of San Francisco is considering our application out as one of the, um, the few apps that's, um, that uh, it qualifies as you know, verif verified records for the COVID-19 records. So um, the fact that it's an open architecture, the fact that we have um, verified records, another important consideration is I guess we all didn't, didn't quite understand necessarily how this was all gonna play out. No one can necessarily predict the future, but um, you know, it's not just a quote unquote vaccine passport, but it also allows you to show your COVID-19 test records. Not everybody wants to get the COVID vaccine. Not everybody can for medical reasons. So if these mandates that are coming out allow, and many of them do, for you to be regularly tested instead of vaccinated in your vaccine passport, quote unquote, uh, again, a term I don't quite like, must should have that ability to show your COVID-19 test results. None do. <laughs> so we've, we've incorporated that in, obviously, because we're really a digital medical wallet and we're looking to go beyond just COVID-19. So uh, that, that's a key part, whether you're doing the, um, the PCR test and swab test or, or uh, antigen test or an antibody test, you can upload all that, all that information. Um, later, we're going to be you know, moving on to, to other features, but for now, it's, it's being used for COVID-19. And, and our real focus is um, while keeping a, a close eye on security and, and allowing you to opt in to share this information so that you're in control, we've got to get the economy back open. Not just people are dying, but com companies are dying and have died. But we have to do it in a data-driven way that's both protected in this IoT world and, and that makes sense, right? And so this is what we've, why we've designed um, ConfirmD and, and why we're really passionate about it. 
Um, let me ask you one last question, right? Because on, you know, more people are coming to the realization, right, about information vulnerability, how to control your digital exhaust, how to improve security. There are folks uh, at the beginning of the pandemic who may have had open Wi-Fi networks and they've decided that they need to, to, to close them. Uh, you know, maybe two-factor authentication is good. Your iPhone, in fact, now tells you that your passwords are, you know, th that you've used the same password 32 times. You should really change these passwords, right? Um, what are some of the things that you guys are doing to ensure that data security? Because I think folks might say that the most intimate, important, and personal information is medical information, uh, right? So for that to work, and, and obviously that's always been a concern about digital uh, health, digitizing health records, although I have to say, you know, my doctor has digitized health records and I benefit from it because uh, anybody in that office looks at my full case file. And if I call and say, hey, I've got this or that problem, they say, well, we've reviewed all your records back to 2008, every single visit, and here's, what this tells us, right? All your cholesterol results, what have you. How, how do you do this and make sure that it's as secure as it can be for those people who might be a little skittish about putting any kind of Absolutely. medical information on an app? Well, I'll be frank with you. I've, I founded this company because I myself am skittish and uh, we're, I don't want to say we're the anti-tech because I'm a big proponent of some of the tech companies out there, but we are, we've designed this with the user in mind and data protection and privacy foremost not with some other bottom line in mind. And um, on, it's on a HIPAA compliant backend. I'm very proud of our backend. Unfortunately, it's part of a platform you don't see. You, you don't, as a user, you don't get to see how we design the backend, but, but I will tell you, we are using AWS. They're a best-in-class vendor and they have all the capabilities and we know how to use them. You know, sometimes AWS, um, like some of these cloud, um, cloud capabilities can be like a Maserati. And I've never driven a Maserati, but I know if you get in one, you're not sure what you're doing, you can crash it. And so you have to know how to apply these tools. We've created a system that's, um, that is a good one from a cybersecurity and a personal security um, standpoint. It, it also though allows you um, to share information with your employer. The employers are coming out with mandates. And so we, with, in this, with, with our, the web-based platform, the employer can have a dashboard. And if there is a mandate, you're gonna get a text on your phone and it's gonna say, hey, Joe, your employer is using ConfirmD by BuddyCheck to keep you safer at work. If you agree to share your medical records, which are protected in a HIPAA compliant backend, download the app, upload your records, and have a nice day. So um, this it does put you in charge because you can say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to bring my paper records in. That's great. But really, at the end of the day, I'll tell you, if it were me, I'm going to be losing those paper records one in 10 times. Uh, one of the companies we were talking to to do our, our first pilot with um, decided they needed to wait, and they decided to do a paper process at the beginning of the pandemic instead of going with the digital solution. Um, and they had a HIPAA violation within the first, um, well, technically it might not be a HIPAA violation because they're not a, a health um, company, but they had a, an issue by having lost some of the paperwork because employees were, were filling out paperwork every day at the door. So whether it's a convenience thing because you're afraid of losing your, your vaccine card or you don't wanna bring around five pages of paper. I'm, I'm currently in Europe and I've had four tests so far. I've gone through a few different countries. It's a lot of paperwork. I'm gonna lose it. I'm gonna you know, misplace it. The digital option is the best. Of course, it has to be done with security by design in mind and with all the cybersecurity bells and whistles um, from the outset. At one last point, you know, it's one thing to have medical records on your phone that you may not need to share with others, right? If, if I have a, maybe a brain tumor or something, well, it's unfortunate, but I don't need 
to show somebody that I have or have don't have that to get into a venue. Right. This this information needs to be shared because it's population health data. That's what society has decided. I don't take and we don't take a position one way or the other on on the mandates. We're just providing a tool that actually gives you a choice, a better choice, and uh, makes it much more convenient for you and the employer to do this safely. Well, Carl, thanks very, very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, certainly a novel uh, solution to a problem, right? People complained uh, in the in uh, you know in the early 1900s about the introduction of passports and how that was limiting freedom. But you and I are of a generation where we had to have those yellow vaccination cards, and we had to show those yellow vaccination cards. Uh, you know, before we went to school, we had to you know, go to our doctor and, you know, show the school that our kids got their uh, shots. Uh, let me ask one one last question. I mean, and, and obviously uh, there's there's a surety uh, here, but it's also a little bit of a Geigo thing, right? Garbage in, garbage out. Uh, are there anything that you guys can do to make sure that whatever people upload into these wallets aren't forgeries? Or is that just part of the limitation of these at this point, right? Because we don't have a registry more broadly to be able to search this stuff, right? And unfortunately, there's a rather robust trade in forged uh, vaccine certificates. I mean, is there anything you can reasonably do uh, on on that front? Correct. Well, let, let me just say, first of all, it does take some people by surprise, but um, I'm proud to say that as, as, as an American citizen and one who worked hard for our country for 30 years overseas, we um, do have a very robust kind of debate, um, debating society and we don't have a central registry or database cdc records are not necessarily complete or accessible to to everybody this is done at the state and local levels with varying degrees of success and efficiency depending on the state you're in and so um there is no central location where these records are held and then the paper record that was given out was expedient at the time not criticizing it per se but it doesn't it doesn't make it easier to, uh, to suss out forgeries, that's for sure. The verification process we've, we've um, instituted in our platform brings in verified, um, certified medical professionals. We're talking about doctors, nurses, folks who know what these records should look like. And um, we have this kind of third-party verification either, um, and, and as we get better at it, we're, we definitely are looking at, at forgeries. We also have the identity verification in front of it so that if and when there are problems, we know who these people are, right? Because right. they're having to upload an ID that is um, is verified and we take IDs from all over the world and then it does a facial match. And then there's a, a reminder that forgery of a federal document is a crime. And I think I can refer people to my LinkedIn where I've highlighted um, a potential five-year sentence for a couple of guys in um, Hawaii that were using forged vaccine cards. So it is a problem, it's one we're looking at. It's one that no app can really 100% solve, but it's one that that a good app should um, should should address, and and some don't don't address it. Um, and many try. Uh, we think we've come up with uh, the best uh, uh, solution out there for the time being, and we're working hard to um, to to do additional anti-fraud going forward with some techniques that I I can't tell you about, but I will tell you that they do do nothing to violate the privacy of the individuals and everything to protect. Um, the uh, the platform from from being abused so that it can be be trusted um, by, by those who are using it. Carl, thanks very much again. Best of luck. Looking forward to having you back on the program again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Vago. Everyone is a contributor at Northrop Grumman, and every day is an opportunity to help defend our nation 
and our allies. Visit our careers page at ngc.com to learn about joining the Cyber and Intelligence Mission Solutions team.